0: Well, good morning, Uh, Melanie Park Church. Sure do miss seeing your sweet faces, but I look forward to being together soon. A special uh, good morning to Charlie Bruffy, who came to our house the other day and just absolutely brightened everything about our home. So you are welcome anytime, Charlie, you want to come visit again. As we get started this morning, I want to to consider uh, an important decision that we must all make when it comes to how we view the world. The decision is like this. We either let our circumstances inform our faith, or we let our faith inform our circumstances. In either situation, what we believe determines how we respond. Let me take the most recent coronavirus as an example. It's on everybody's mind, and it's a a really good example to look at. If we let our circumstances inform our faith, based on what we are all experiencing, we might determine that God's judgment is upon us. And since the United States has the most cases by far, he must be especially displeased with us. Our goal would be to ensure God's favor in order to receive God's protection. Because if I get the virus, then maybe he has an issue against me. These are the logical conclusions uh, if we let our circumstances inform our faith. And we can't help in that situation but but walk on eggshells just wondering if, if we might be next. We are focused on fear and our attention is on the virus. We respond based on the conviction that our well-being is determined by what we do. But... If we let our faith inform our circumstances, we begin with what we know to be true about God. We believe God is righteous and just. And nothing He does is outside of His original plan, a plan that was put in place from before the world began. And there is nothing that man can do to change what God has decreed. This plan of God flows out of His love with the intent of bringing salvation to the world. He takes everything, everything that happens in history, and uses it to accomplish His good and perfect will. And since the destiny of His people is determined, we have an assurance that cannot be shaken. As Paul has reminded us in his first letter to the Thessalonians, he says, whether awake or asleep, whether alive or dead, we are together with Christ. In other words, we can't lose. If this is our conviction, we won't be foolish, but we won't respond as a captive to fear because we're not focused on the virus Our attention is on on what we know to be true about God. I say all this because I believe the Thessalonian church is in a very similar place with one major difference. You see, they are being persecuted because of their faith. And we need to be clear, that's not what we are experiencing. They are dying as martyrs, not as victims of a disease. See, in our world today, if we do what is right, if we uh, keep our social distance, if we wash our hands, if we're careful, we'll be okay. It's just the opposite for them. If, If the Thessalonians do what is right, if they faithfully follow Christ, their situation gets worse, not better. However, they still face a challenge of how to respond to their circumstances. Because many of them are, in fact, convinced that they are under the hand of God's judgment. And Paul has been concerned that the trial that they are experiencing might be so great that they would abandon their faith. That's the logical outcome if we let our circumstances inform our faith. And so Paul is writing to encourage them. He wants them to understand how their faith should inform their circumstances. He reminds them of God's promises for his people. If they rely on those promises, it changes how they view their circumstances. It brings an assurance, an assurance that replaces their fear. And what is true for them is equally true for us, if we are willing to grow in our faith. So with that in mind, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we open up your word, we know that there is a lot that is happening in our world. And it is stirring all kinds of emotions inside of us. And much like the Thessalonians, we want to have the right perspective on how we view life, whatever the circumstances might be. We want our circumstances to be informed by our faith. But Father, we we are weak, and you know this well. You are compassionate. And so as we walk through your word, would you please, as Paul intended for the Thessalonians, use what he said to encourage us in our situations as well? Whatever they may be, whatever it looks like in our homes, in our marriages, in our families, would you take the truth of your word and drive a deep anchor inside of our soul that allows us to grow in our faith? Lord, that's our prayer as we open your word and we ask this in your name. Amen. This morning we're going to begin 2 Thessalonians. Uh, Paul wrote this letter uh, just a few months after they had received his first letter. Uh, we'll see in chapter 2 it appears that the church is being misled. Specifically they're being influenced by false teachers and very possibly someone who wrote a forged letter that Paul intends to correct. Their concern centers around the promise of the Lord's return. So Paul will speak to this issue and how it relates to what he wrote to them in his first letter. But before he does, Paul makes a point to encourage the continued progress of the Thessalonian church. As we talked about last week, this church has become a model for what really every Christian church should be. Even amidst all the confusion and concern that they're now experiencing, they continue to stay the course. Paul says their faith has greatly enlarged and their love continues to grow. So much so that Paul himself holds them up as an example for all the other churches to look at, especially considering their perseverance underneath what is an ongoing and very likely increasing persecution. When Paul talks about their persecution, he uses a word that literally means To remain under. So despite all the negative influence, both outside and now inside the church, the Thessalonians continue to stay strong. They're not running from the difficulty. They are looking to the Lord, remaining under the struggle and clinging to their faith. That's the example that they are for the other Christians, including us. And Paul tells them in verse 5 that their faithfulness is a validation of God's judgment, which is kind of an interesting statement if you think about what What exactly does he mean by that? Well, Paul actually says something very similar in his letter to the Philippians. I want to read that to you. It's in Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 27. This is what he says. He says, Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I may may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the sake of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, and here it is, which is a sign of destruction for them, but for salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. In both cases, the church represents a testimony that the opponents are rejecting. These enemies are not just persecuting the church. They are rejecting the good news of the gospel being proclaimed by the church. This is the paradox that we see all throughout Scripture, that those who are honored and comfortable in this world will not inherit the gift of salvation. And those who are despised in this world because of their faith will inherit an eternal reward. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, for this light and momentary affliction, whatever suffering we may be enduring will be exchanged for an eternal weight of glory. Now let's continue in verse 6. It says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. First, it's important to see that the suffering of the saints has not gone unnoticed. God sees their suffering, and he will not let it go unpunished. His justice requires payment for their wrongful affliction. You know, if you think about it, we would desire the same from our own judicial system. If someone was clearly guilty of murder, of putting someone to death, it would be wrong and unjust for that judge to just let them go free. There's nothing right about that. Especially if that murder, that taking of another life, was simply because they didn't agree what the other person believed in. There's nothing right about that. Well, why would it be any different then with the justice of God? Well, the fact is, it's not any different. A righteous God must bring a righteous judgment, which is what Paul describes there at the, in the middle of verse 7. But before we look at that, I want you to notice how different what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians is compares to what he's now saying. And let me remind you. So I'm going to go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 16. So listen closely so that we can compare the two. He says in verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus, we will always be with the Lord. And he says, comfort and encourage one another With these words. Here we see Jesus, the archangel, and the trumpet of God, calling the saints, both dead and alive, to live eternally in the presence of God. This is a day of great rejoicing, especially for those who have put their trust in Christ. But now I want us to look at the description in Paul's second letter beginning in the middle of verse 7. And let's compare it to what I just read. Here he says, The Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Here we see Jesus coming in judgment with mighty angels and with flaming fire. So I want you to see very clearly that Paul is describing two different events. And I think the original language actually helps us clue into this difference a little better. Back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he's describing the coming of Christ to gather the church, or the rapture as it is often known, he uses a work, a Greek word that means... It's, it's, uh, the Greek word is parousia, and it means the arrival or the appearing. An arrival of Jesus only seen and heard by the saints for which it is intended. This seems to point most clearly to the rapture or the gathering of the church. But here in 2 Thessalonians, when he's describing the coming of the Lord, he uses a different word. It's the word apokalypsis. It's a word that means to reveal or unveil or uncover. It's a different word. And in this word, we see that Jesus takes what has been hidden and reveals it for all the world to see. This is not the gathering or the rapture of the church. This is the second coming of Christ. In chapter 2, this will become explicitly clear. But for now, I want you to see that Paul is addressing the confusion in the Thessalonian church about the coming of Christ by distinguishing very, two very different events. The gathering of the church and Christ's coming in judgment. Now, before we leave this section, I want you to notice the basis of the Lord's judgment. Paul says they are judged because they do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not some capricious decision by God where he looks at people and says, mm, I like you, but I don't like you. And I, I, I kind of like you, but I definitely don't like you. That is not what's going on here. What it's saying is that, the, that belief is the basis of God's judgment. And he can make that decision because of having made himself known. Let me give you probably one of the best passages to explain that. It's in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Listen to what it says. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And here's the key. Because that which is known about God is evident uh, within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what he has made so that they and we are without excuse. Psalm 19 says something very similar when it talks about how the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the expanse is proclaiming the, the work of his hands. In other words, all of creation speaks of its creator. And if you look, it can be clearly seen. But God has gone even further because he designed the church specifically to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We, the church, are responsible for putting the gospel on display, both in our words as we speak about the the crucifixion of Jesus, the death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That's at the heart of the gospel, but also in our deeds so that they may see our good work and, and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Our transformed lives tell the story of God's redeeming grace. And the persecution of the church, like we see in Thessalonica, people are not just rejecting the church, they are rejecting the message of the church. Ultimately, they're rejecting the gospel. And Jesus will bring judgment for their willful rebellion. Look at how he describes that judgment, beginning in verse 9. And these will, rep- will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marvelled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was in fact believed. Now, I admit this is not a message that we hear very often from the pulpit these days. But we don't have good news unless we do. Because salvation is only incredible because the punishment is so terrible. Paul describes it as eternal destruction, away from the presence of God. And what we need to understand, most importantly being described here, is that all humanity was created for eternity. We saw that in Ecclesiastes when we looked through that book together and we learned that God placed eternity in our hearts when he breathed life into our lungs. And that's true whether you believe in Jesus or not. All humanity was created for eternity. But Jesus is the only way for that eternal longing to be satisfied with an eternal rest in the presence of an eternal God apart from Christ, we choose. We make the decision to live eternally separated from what our heart longs for most. And this is not annihilation where we're judged and punished and then kind of cease to exist. It's actually worse. This is the agony of an eternal longing that is hopelessly un. You can use whatever metaphor you want to, fire, darkness, any kind of gloom and doom, but whatever you choose will not even come close to describing the torment of this. No love, no life, no joy, no hope, with no end. But it's really important to understand that this message is always proclaimed right alongside an invitation. Because that is not how it has to be. John, at the end of his gospel, writes something that really we can apply to all of Scripture. He's speaking specifically about what he's written, but I could say that all of the Bible was written so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Savior, the Son of God. And that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. That's the invitation. The only reason, this is key, the only reason Jesus hasn't returned is because of those who have not believed. He's patient. We know that from 2 uh, 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 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, where it says that God is not slow about his promise. And he's, ta- he's talking about the promise of his return. He's not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient, not wanting any, any to perish, but for all to come to a place of repentance. When Jesus returns, his judgment will be fair, but it will be final. And the gathering of his church is where Jesus comes for his saints. At the coming of judgment, it's when he comes with his saints. When you trust in Christ, you will be with him. And it tells us that we will marvel. I believe we will marvel at the goodness and grace that has been extended to us. Because in death or in life, we live together with Christ. That's the promise. Look at how he continues in verse 11. He says, To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of Of your calling, and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul closes this letter with a pastoral prayer, and so I believe everything he says applies to you and I as well. He's praying for the church to live in a manner worthy of their calling. And you'll remember that our calling is to proclaim the good news of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our lives tell the story of God's redeeming grace. We should put the gospel on display, not in just what we say, but also in what people see and how we live our lives. This powerful work of faith that God does within our hearts creates new desires. Desires for good and not evil. And if you think about it, that's a miracle. The reason it's a miracle is because of what Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says when it describes humanity apart from Christ. And it says that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. So if there is anything that is good in our life, it is a gracious work of God. We are divinely empowered to walk in faithful obedience. It's the only reason why. So Paul is praying for us to live out of all that God has made possible through Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit so that the name of Christ may be glorified in you and you in him. We are called to demonstrate the power of God's amazing grace. And any dishonor that we might receive on this side of heaven will be exchanged for the honor of being present with the Lord when he returns. Now, if that is our conviction Does it not reshape how you view all of life? Instead of being ruled by fear, wouldn't it cause us to be more apt to rely on God's promises? But I want you to understand, this is not an on-off switch where we're afraid and then boom, we're not afraid. Afraid, not afraid. That's not how this works. And we shouldn't equate fear with faith. So that the presence of fear means an absence of faith. Because that's not true either. The goal is to grow in our faith. So we move from less faith to greater faith in order to minimize our fear. You see, fear is an unavoidable reality in the world in which we live. The fact is, this world is a scary place. And God knows that. Which is why do not fear is the most frequent command of God seen throughout all of Scripture. God knows that we are weak and can control very little in our lives. But he wants us to put our trust in him because he is in sovereign control of everything in our lives. See, I'm learning this in my own life. And sometimes it's a day-to-day, moment-by-moment practice of growing from lesser faith... To greater faith, and the good news is, is God is very compassionate as we learn. I talked about this at one of the midweek devotionals, but I want you to think back to that example of Jesus on the boat with his disciples. Remember, they were out in the middle of the sea. Jesus, by this time, had fallen asleep after a very busy day of ministry, and while they were out in the middle of the sea, a storm suddenly rose up, and the disciples. Were afraid, And we need to understand they were afraid, and rightly so. Their lives were at stake. Which is why when they woke Jesus up, they said, Jesus, save us, we are perishing. And then Jesus, when he awoke, looked at his disciples and he says, Why are you afraid, O ye of little faith? And then it says that he rebuked the wind, and immediately the wind and the waves instantly stood still. Now, here's the key. I want you to notice that Jesus rebuked the wind, not his disciples. Jesus rebuked the wind, not his disciples. He challenged his disciples to grow in faith, but he didn't just leave it there. He showed them why. He says, oh, ye of little faith. And then he turns and speaks, and everything stood still. He gave them a reason. To believe By showing them his power. See, the fact is, if their life is in their own hands, they should be afraid. But if their life is in his hands, then there's nothing to fear. And the same is true for us. See, this is Paul's message to the Thessalonian church, and really it's the message for us as well. Faith is what gives us the power to press on even when we are afraid. God is compassionate. He understands our weaknesses. But He wants us to turn to Him. And He wants us to trust in Him. One of my favorite places to go when I am in the middle of this challenge myself is in the Psalms. Because in the Psalms, we see David being very honest and open about how he's feeling in his life in that moment. So I want to close with Psalm 56. And if you'll just listen to the words that he speaks in these first three verses, he says this. He says, Be gracious, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about this passage is that David is afraid. And much like disciples, rightly so. We know he's been hunted down like an animal by King Saul and his armies. In the context of this passage, he's actually in the presence of the Philistines where he is now seeking refuge. Now think about that. Goliath, the Philistine he killed. So David is now seeking refuge in the arms of the enemies. That's how afraid he is but I want you to notice what he says in verse 4. In God, whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? You see, at first we see David looking at his circumstances to inform his faith. And then in verse 4, he does just the opposite. He looks through his faith to inform his circumstances. He looks at God's word. He remembers God's promises and it gives him an assurance even in the midst of his fear because I promise the situation didn't change. He's still in a bad place, but he is trusting in the Lord to the point that he says, what can mere man do to me? And let's just think about that. What's the worst case scenario for David? Well, I think the worst case scenario is they kill him. That's the worst possible thing that could happen, but yet it's the best possible thing that could happen. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. David can't lose. (laughs) And neither can we. Because when we see our circumstances through eyes of faith, it gives us an assurance that cannot be shaken. So as you finish up this morning, as we close in this final song, I want you to take these words to heart. But please, after the song is over, Don't just walk away. Spend some time thinking and talking about what we've looked at in God's Word this morning. And and I want you to be honest with yourself and, and ask that question. Do you see your circumstances through eyes of faith? and Do you let your circumstances be informed by your faith? Or do you let your faith be informed by your circumstances? What are some of the ways, as you think through this, that you can grow from lesser faith to to greater faith. We never arrive. We're always growing, but what are some steps that you can take to grow in your faith? And then finally, be honest about your fears. And as you're together, spend some time praying for one another. Ask the Lord to enter into those places. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your compassion, for you know us well. In fact, you know us better than we know ourselves because you created us. And you created us to live in a life-giving relationship with you, both now and for eternity. And you have made it clear that you are calling us to yourself to trust in you, to see all of life through eyes of faith. And so, Lord, I just pray that these words of truth would encourage our hearts and our minds, even as we live in the midst of pretty crazy circumstances in our world today. May we have a steadfast assurance of who we are in you. And may we live a life that puts the good news of the gospel on display because of all that you've done. Lord, we trust in you. That's the assurance. That's where we stand.